0: I'm David Mosscrob. Welcome to Open to Debate. Managing the pandemic has required a delicate balance of expert guidance and government decision making. While experts provide knowledge essential for deciding what we should do and how we should do it, politicians are ultimately accountable to the public for the policies, laws, and programs they adopt. So, what is the role of experts during a pandemic? On this episode of Open to Debate, I talk with David Fisman, Professor of Epidemiology at the University of Toronto's Dalla Lana School of Public Health. Let's start by understanding the role of expertise in public health. I mean, how do you conceive of the role of experts both in and out of government when it comes to, to policymaking, either during an emergency or, or even just day to day?
1: You know, it, it, it's almost like I, I mean, I guess, I guess, you know, back in the day, maybe you would have had a dilemma, and you, you so all, all the New Yorker cartoons with someone who's sort of going up the mountainside and talking to the, you know, to the person sitting outside the cave, you know, your oracle or whatever to give you wise advice. Um, I hope that doesn't come off as it is too pompous, but this is a weird time, and you're dealing with a weird issue, and I think you know, some of us have been thinking about pandemics and epidemics and vaccines and so forth for a very long time, because it's our job. And now you have, you know, for the last year and a half, it's been a topic of general interest to the public and also to politicians, you know, decision makers. So I think everybody's had to get up to, to speed in a hurry. But Expertise, you know, famously, I, I don't know if it's true or not. There's the whole ten thousand hours thing, um, and as a friend said to me early on, you know, so some of the stuff that was happening with with the pandemic seemed pretty straightforward to myself and a couple of my colleagues. And you know, this friend said, "You know, you've had your ten thousand hours, mm. right, right? You know, I've been teaching this stuff and thinking about this stuff for quite a while." So, in that context. Uh, it, it's natural for people to seek you out, and particularly early in the pandemic, that did happen a lot. Because I think, particularly decision makers, felt like they were out of their depth and they wanted to, you know, reach out to someone who knows what this stuff is. Um, I think as as this has gone on, <laughs> um, you, you know, a, a bunch of different things have happened. One is that I think increasingly people feel comfortable with their views on how this all works whether or not I would regard those as correct. I think people have grown into their views. I look at someone like Roman Babber in Ontario, who you know, has been sufficiently an outlier politically to get booted out of caucus. But I think, you know, I knew Roman. <laughs> I, 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 I met Roman early in the pandemic uh, mm-hmm. by phone. Um, I don't think he's, you know, he's a, a, a malign person. He's a nice guy. Uh, he clearly has some very strong beliefs about this pandemic that he's very comfortable with that I, you know, you know, that I think are are problematic in terms of policy, but, you know, he's clearly comfortable with them and, and he's sort of grown into them where, you know, in April, 2020, maybe someone like that is, is talking to me and saying, well, what is this? How, how does this work over time? They've become increasingly confident that they know how this works. Hmm. I think you've also seen, you know, different voices and different structures kind of emerge over time. And I think as, as, as decision makers have had, you know, it's a little bit of an a la carte thing because there are enough kind of, there's enough diversity of views from people who basically have the same letters behind their name as I have behind my name that you can pick and choose and decide who, you know, who's most simpatico with you and um, who's, who, who Who can you sort of walk, walk forward and step with most easily. And I think I've seen that a little bit at a few different levels of government where cl- clearly there are folks who have sort of found simpatico experts that aren't going to you know, push them outside their comfort zone that understand where they're coming from from a policy point of view and so forth. So, so I think that this has evolved in, in, in all of those ways there there've also been sort of these, these shocks some good some bad along the way that have sort of you know sort of shaken things up a bit i think donald trump's defeat you know his loss of the office of presidency was a shock but a really good shock that um that, that um probably helped the the global response to the pandemic the variants have obviously been a negative shock um and you sort of see a little bit of shuffling and a little bit of realignment. I mean, I'm, I'm sure Justin Trudeau had lost the election it was Prime, Prime Minister O'Toole now. You know, we, we would be taking a bit of a different tack and I suspect mm. experts advising the federal government w- would also shift. So so I think, all, you know, all this stuff's going to evolve because it's, it's, it's a marathon. At the end of the day, as you say, it is government that's that's accountable or that's meant to be accountable Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and you're in an advisory role. So I, you know, I think in advisory role, you just sort of have to roll with it. And I mean, I've been on the inside and on the outside, you know, provincially, federally um, I guess, even internationally during this pandemic in terms of some very limited interactions with WHO and some limited interactions with foreign governments. And um, you know, sometimes, so sometimes you're, you're part of the in crowd and sometimes you're, you know, you're, you're, you're outside the tent. Right. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's, I, I think that's probably true of any human interaction, especially in terms of, you know, um, of, of, of policy and how policy relates to experts in any field. One of the most interesting things to me has been that in Canada, we have this, what I think is, for the most part, a hyper competent, you know, class of bureaucrats. Um, There's some really amazing people working away at, for example, Public Health Agency of Canada, also Public Health Ontario. Incidentally, I think Public Health Ontario is is a is a. <laughs> I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's too out of turn to say it's 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 an incredibly dysfunctional organization and has been for a long time. I think I was employee number three there, and it was because <laughs> it was dysfunctional when i left about a year after. <laughs> so i can't even imagine but but for for all the, the organizations dysfunctional there are a lot of individuals there who are doing their jobs and doing outstanding work and a lot of that stuff is out of view the difficulty of course is, is that um you know the, the those folks are very much um um i guess uh Uh, 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 subservient to to assistant deputy ministers and politicians. So they can't always shine and they can't always speak their minds. And I think being a bit of an outsider can be helpful in that regard.
0: Yeah. So that that leads me to the question, what's the right balance between expert guidance and and political accountability And, and, you know, related to that, what are the limits of expertise when influencing politicians? Because, obviously right. you, you know experts sometimes disagree we don't always agree on who the right experts are politicians have to take into account what the public wants because the public might decide look we understand the the risks we understand the balance but we want to go this way anyway uh, How do you, how do you balance that out when you've got a sort of suite of, of different experts and when you're facing the problem that you mentioned you there are so many people yeah that politicians can choose from that sometimes they can sort of choose their own experts
1: i mean i I think, I think there are a couple of things from, as someone who's never been a politician or really much of a decision maker in any, ro- any role, uh, personal or public, um, you know, I, I guess I've been mostly involved from the expert side. And a couple of things about that. One is, I think it's important to have a bit of a sense of humour about how much influence you can or cannot have, mm-hmm. right? At the end of the day, you're not deciding. So you can make a case you know, talking to busy people, keep it short. Um, I think you can try and make a compelling argument, but at the end of the day, you have to have a bit of a sense of humor if people decide to go in a different way, or as I think was the experience less for me than for some other colleagues on on the science table, of thinking that you had actually briefed the decision makers, got them to understand, understood where they were going, and then, you know, Two days later, they're going in a totally different direction. You don't know what happened. I mean, you have to sort of roll with that. That said, I mean, and I don't know, I suspect there are people who would disagree with this. I think I'm also a private citizen who happens to have expertise in infectious disease epidemiology. And for me, social media has been a bit of a boon. Because I don't think that I have any obligation to stay tight-lipped when I disagree with my political leaders. You know, we're supposed to be able to speak out in Canada. And um, what I find is, some I mean, you know, it's almost perverse because I think my social media stuff, the Twitter, my, you know, my, my, um, my Twitter account, I think is, is a source of a lot of annoyance to people. But in a sense, that's a beast that's been fed. Because what I find is, you know, you can't you can't make the case on the inside or people aren't interested on the inside. And then you make the case on Twitter and all of a sudden they flip around. So in a sense, it's like, you know, it's like a bad toddler rewarding for bad behavior. What mm-hmm. are they gonna, they're going to do it again. Um, so so I, I think social media is a bit of a wild card in all of this. Because it, it's clear, I mean, I, I've, I don't know this, I've heard this about you know, the Ford government, and I'm sure it's true of many or most governments in North America that, you know, they're polling all the time and they know what the poll numbers look like. And mm-hmm. and that their politicians, you know, they need to get reelected to keep their jobs and that's motivating to them. So in as much as there's this, this other path you can take, I mean, I feel like I've had more success in influencing the conversation being a bit of a, you know,
0: <laughs>
1: you know, channeling my, my 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 inner inner uh inner uh uh, uh you know james dean character <laughs> <laughs> you know what you got um th- then th- then then being part of these sort of these um uh, uh, groups and committees and you know tables so that's that's a bit of a strange perspective i'm not sure that I I'm not sure how how widespread that is. I, I think I've I've lived a bit of a weird life in that way over the last two years. But you know, it's it's funny because I, I think for me it's I've had a lot of minority views during this pandemic mm-hmm. where I've always been outvoted, you know, um you, you know, without getting into details about science table or whatever, like it's always been clear. I think for anyone who had experience with emerging infectious diseases and with influenza, that kids were going to be important. And one realized very early on with this thing that, um, that it wasn't that kids didn't get infected. I mean, we've known since February, 2020 that kids get infected, but they get infected asymptomatically. And so you miss them. Like that's been very clear. That's all, that's been a very much minority view. Um, The views on aerosol have been minority views. I've been a minority view on the plausibility that this you know this whole thing represents a breach of biosecurity in a lab so i've always been outvoted um, on things like that And, and and in that sense it's very satisfying to be able to have a different platform to try and make your
0: case you mentioned government polling and i think you know that gets to to part of the heart of the challenge which is governments feel like they need to be responsive to the people and yet when it suits them not to be there, they're not. And they, they seem to pivot back and forth between this idea that they need to be responsive to public opinion and, and they need to lead it sometimes. And the fact is, you know, governments have a leading role in forming public opinion and not just responding to it because, you know, this is part of, in my previous life when I was an academic, this was my research. People don't really walk around with fully formed, coherent ideologies in their head and, you know, opinions about everything. They're picking them up as they go from places and, and they're subject to change if there are, are people who can change them, including experts who have a, uh, who have a role in, in patterning, yeah. you know, political uh, behavior and political judgments. And you talked about being in the minority of these positions, but, you know, maybe not forever. Right, it sounds to me like there's some movement. Certainly, on you know on the aerosol perspective, there seems to be some movement. It seems like that you know there are times when the minority position becomes the majority position at some point, Right. right? I mean, have you found that there's been a role for minority voices, minority opinion voices, rather, in in genuinely changing minds during the pandemic? Have you seen movement on anything?
1: What's What's interesting is I think a lot of this stuff. Your point about public polling and them sort of flipping back and forth is an interesting one. Um, Frank Graves. I don't. I don't know if you've oh yes, chatted with Frank, but but Frank has had data from Ecos for for basically ever, um, showing that there's 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 broad and deep public support for vaccine passports. And and frankly, it's bad, sorry that. Bad <laughs> I, I <guess>. <laughs> <laughs> frankly, Frank, um, his polling data. All the way along has been has sort of had a wisdom of crowds thing going on, where I as someone who feels, I feel like I understand epidemics and pandemics pretty well just because it's my job and it's what I've done for a long time. And then you look at the ECOS public polling data and the average Canadian gets this. Right. they in, in terms of where we're at, at the, in the pandemic, are things bad? Are things good? Are we worried about what's coming in six months? You know, what's the long view? Like when I look at his polling data, I'm like, yeah, they, you know, the average person gets it. That doesn't mean that, you know, that, the that, that some disinformed anti-vax person who's standing outside a hospital yelling gets it, but it's like the guessing, you know, how many blue jelly beans are there in the jar, mm-hmm. you know, right answer tends to be the average of everyone's wrong answers and, and you see that in the polling data where the average Canadian really gets it you know the average perception is is very very accurate and I've I've been puzzled as to why politicians haven't sort of done well by doing good because better control of COVID has I think generally rewarded um, governments that have that have done that with, with sort of high approval numbers and there's some interesting exceptions to that I mean you look at Nova Scotia which sort of knocked the ball out of the park for, for about, about a, a year a year and a half in terms of their COVID and you know Ian Rankin got, then got voted out as Premier which which astounded me um, you Quebec which had some early struggles, Quebec has never, unlike Alberta where where approvals very very low or Ontario where approvals very very low even when Quebec and Quebec is doing much much better now than they were initially on the pandemic, but even in the bad early days, there was a lot of approval for what was happening in Quebec, which is interesting. But in general, it sort of has seemed to me that you know you could do well by doing good. People are scared; uh, they 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 want to be safe. They want to get back to normalcy there are pretty clear kind of policy levers you can use to protect people and have them buy in and say, you know, you're on, you're on the team and I'm our leader and, you know, forward together um, that haven't been used for a lot of the pandemic and to the detriment of governments. And that's, you know, I'm not a political scientist. That's been puzzling to me. Like, why wouldn't you, (laughs) why wouldn't you control this stuff better and have people feel safer and feel grateful to you? Mm -hmm. That's not made a ton of sense to me. Um, and
0: now I've wandered off and forgotten the initial question. But, well, it was it was about whether or not the you've you've seen some movement in you know the minority position on anything oh, that, that might be think, a minority a majority position. So that's been fascinating, actually,
1: because at this point, I I think what's happened is on aerosol to to you know to pick to pick one area where I think I think there is a at this point, broad popular understanding that that's how this disease spreads. And I think that popular understanding has really helped us control the pandemic better. I think what happened there is basically you were able to bring science to people who hadn't ever thought about this stuff before and had open minds. And it's so slap in the face, obvious at this point, it's like, oh, choir practices, you have super spreader events in choir practices. Right. you have super spreader events indoors, but not outdoors and so forth. You know, you can explain to people, you use simple analogies like cigarette smoke, and people have an open mind that, you know, people understand, oh, cigarette smoke's an aerosol, it's denser close to the mouth of the smoker, and, you know, your natural impulse is to step away because... Um, you, you know, you see the, you smell the smoke less strongly if you're a few feet away and so forth. So you can use these analogies. And, and I think most intelligent, commonsensical people look at that and say, oh, so that explains, you know, that explains how this spreads. What's interesting in that regard is most of the resistance continues to come from, you know, <laughs> the noxious, I'll put it in air quotes, the expert community in hospitals, Uh, which has fought back very hard at the idea that they've been basically feeding people nonsense throughout the pandemic in terms of how this spreads. And that's problematic because those are the folks who are, you know, on the science table and on um, the PIDAC, you know, Provincial Infectious Disease Advisory Committee, and those are the folks who are advising the WHO. And what do you do when your experts are the least informed people in the room and also have the most to lose from actually Getting up to speed with science—it's a big problem. It's not a new problem. Um, <laughs> and cholera—we we used to work a little bit on cholera. It was—it was. It was I, I don't know. Uh, you know, we're very lucky to live in a society where cholera isn't really an issue, right? Because we have sewage treatment and water treatment. But it's—it's—it's it's, it's been a fascinating global threat, and it remains a a major infectious disease in a a lot of parts of the world. And um, in the early 2000s, up till probably 2010, 2011, I did a fair bit of work on cholera. And um, what's interesting is um, the social context around cholera has really shifted over time. Um, But early on, very much as you see the medical establishment pushing back on the idea that uh, COVID is airborne now, you had a lot of pushback on the idea that cholera was an infectious disease, which had important, uh, or a communicable disease, something that could be transmitted person to person, which had important implications for control. And in fact, just as you see with aerosol now, the folks who, who are pushing back on aerosol have have models that implicitly blame the people who get covid for being insufficiently careful you know they touched their mask or they didn't wash their hands you had the same thing with cholera but because it was a you know prevalent disease in victorian times mm-hmm. um, a lot of this stuff got into morality and there was this 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 idea that the people who were susceptible to cholera so the medical model is cholera spread by miasma basically swamp <laughs> gas that floats over the city right and we know this because, you know, places that smell bad get cholera. So that's how we know. And, um, you know, the, the idea is, well, you know, swamp gas had floated over the city. Surely <coughs> everyone could have got cholera and died, but they didn't. So then you have to tweak the model and say, yes, but it, it really only affects those who have um, poor moral constitutions, right? Who are, who are sinful, gluttonous. It, it, you know, it hits sex workers hard. It hits the poor hard. It's Victorian times, so it's sort of, you know, this idea that God rewards the righteous. So if you're poor, you must have done something bad. Um, So there's this whole sort of kind of kind of model that that allows people to make sense of who's getting sick and where they're getting sick. Um, And in fact, it was physicians who were very big supporters of that. So the dominant medical model was cholera and miasma. That was pushed back on by the general public. Who said no? It's not. It's obviously an infectious disease. It goes from person to person to person, and that was correct and it was slap in the face obvious to the general public, who are sort of belittled and derided in the med- medical press as you know the hysterical public and the ignorant public and so forth. And then you know from the eighteen fifties, eighteen sixties onward, it becomes apparent that oh well, you know the vast unwashed were actually right, and 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 the, and the doctors had it upside down. Um, I think you're. I think you're seeing a lot of, you know, we don't all have side whiskers, right? At this point, or I guess some people do, but um, frock coats and side whiskers and top hats. But the, 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 you know, the dynamic is not is not dissimilar, where you basically have the general public. I think the engineering community, <laughs> actual aerosol scientists who study aerosols for their jobs for for, for over a year now, saying, "Look, this is pretty." straightforward and obvious and you have folks who sort of sit in in power positions within public health and within academic medicine saying no no you silly people you're being uh hysterical and foolish and we know exactly how this we don't we don't actually have any data to back up how we know this but we just know because we're very very experienced and wise and i mean that's been an incredibly dysfunctional dynamic and it's so bizarre. So, you know, And I look forward, I've had some conversations with, with legal people about, you know, is there a class action here that's going to uh, move forward in in a couple of years? Because the science has been clear for a while, and yet you've still had these very um, outmoded, ineffective practices at play in hospitals where people have come to hospitals for care for other reasons, have acquired COVID there and died, you know, to the tune of nearly nothing. I think nearly thousand people now in Ontario alone. Um, and is that, you know, is that negligence, you know, is, 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 is there liability there for the hospitals, even for the individual physicians? And I don't know what the answer to that question is, but it's really been an astounding and really disappointing thing to watch play out. I mean, cause I, you know, I've got peers and former mentors who are on the other side of this thing. And I, I, I couldn't have imagined a few years ago that um that there there would be such a so much daylight between us so that's been that's been a very difficult thing
0: are experts getting caught in in their commitment i mean is it a matter of saying is it a matter of just not being able to assess the situation or is it a matter of sort of motivated reasoning where they said look we've taken this position we've doubled down on it we're pot committed and so we're sticking by it. Is the conservatism coming from a sort of personal psychological commitment, or is it the fact that institutionally they're not processing the data, or is it a competence issue? I mean, I'm I, curious as to why they double down on it, I, or I triple down.
1: I don't know that it's competence, and I, I actually think, I, I, I'm actually going to say, I think, I think some of this stuff is pretty cynical. Respectfully, mm-hmm. because these aren't incompetent people. These are highly intelligent people. But a year and a half into the pandemic, you know, we had a prominent local infection control doc on the CBC this week talking about how important it is to open windows, and I can't remember whether, whether HEPA filters were mentioned. HEPA filters were just uh, uh, mentioned by the, the, the guys who uh, chairs the Ontario Science Table, Peter Unie. But they never say aerosol, and I mean that to me is some cynical doublespeak. Because if you're talking about ventilation, you're talking about something that's in the air, mm-hmm. right? You're not talking about large droplets or contact. Nothing happens to contact when you open a window. What what changes is 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 what's in the air. Ditto HEPA HEPA air cleaners. So you've got sort of this weird doublespeak and this this delicate dance around the word aerosol and airborne. Which makes me think that this is, this is, th- this is actually uh, so- something that's being said for, you know, to the public. With, I, I don't want to use consciousness of, of guilt. That seems a bit extreme. But that people actually know they're wrong. And they're trying, in a sense, to give good guidance without at the same time having to say, you know, I was wrong. It's been aerosol the whole time. So I think a lot of this is reluctance to step down. Uh, to, to to climb down, you know, you, when you've been asserting that this is absolutely not aerosol for so long, I mean, what's the moment to pivot? My my view is that the longer this goes on, the harder it is to climb down. In a sense, it sort of feeds feeds on itself. But I do think you know, there's some cost for some of these people, and and probably jumping off the droplet train earlier is probably going to be better for them in, in term, terms of how how history looks back on this stuff. And I know I'm, I'm sort of speaking in these very, you know, these epic grand terms, but this is a big deal, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the difference between losing a year and a half <laughs> of our lives and, you know, in having our economy messed up having our interactions with others messed up and actually being able to put this thing to bed and move forward especially with vaccines i mean this is the difference and so to be playing funny games because you know you don't want to admit you were wrong because it's going to be inconvenient for your hospital to rearrange its protocols because n95 masks cost a dollar and surgical masks cost 10 cents I mean, all of that stuff seen through the view of history is going to look very, very, very bad, in my opinion. And I think the earlier people climb down, the better. But there doesn't seem to be much appetite for that. Now, Now, this, is <laughs> this has worked once before, right? Because we did have an inquiry after SARS-1, which found that that was airborne and that it should have been managed differently. Um, and there's even acknowledgement. I mean, uh, for example, Bonnie Henry, who's the... Uh, the CMOH out in BC has her name on a paper talking about how SARS one is an aerosol transmitted disease. Um, but but she's she's been very forceful in pushing back on things like masks on the idea of aerosol transmission, and uh, you know has a lot of gravitas in the public health community. Um, so, so so I you know I think in a sense folks have really painted themselves into a corner. But they, they did kind of get away with this once before. So I suppose you look at this and think, well, you know, in in six months or a year after this is over, no one's going to remember this anyway. I don't think that's the case, and I hope it's not the case. But I I, I can see how that that might be the calculus.
0: Yeah, I mean, we I've heard the, the the post SARS discussion come up a lot during the pandemic, and well, you know, one of the of the frustrations I've heard from medical professionals and public health professionals, infectious disease professionals, was to say, well, we seem to have learned a lot, but done nothing. Done uh, nothing. That, yeah. yeah. I mean, we sort of like, we knew we learned all these lessons and yet here we are, right. And stockpiles on down. And is there a sense from the expert community that, that in the sort of post analysis of these things we do come away with lessons and there is consensus but then something happens in public policy that there isn't any uptake
1: yeah yeah and i think the problem is you have to actually to implement what you've learned you would actually have to do things outside of a crisis i think right you'd actually do things when there's a crisis and when the crisis is over you know i, th- I think um I think the urgency subsides, the resources go away. I mean, that's one of the paradoxes of public health um, is that when things are going badly, you get funding. And when things are going well, in other words, public health is working because public health's output is the non-occurrence of events. Right. Uh, that's when, I mean, what was it, a billion-dollar cut to to Toronto public health alone? over. Yeah over a couple of years from the provincial government just before the pandemic broke out. I mean, because things were going well. And you know, money money is gonna flow now because because we failed. Um, and then when things are going well again, things will you know, the money will get cut again. And I think it's also important to remember, I mean, you I think you're a political scientist, if I'm mm-hmm. not
0: well um, by training anyway.
1: <laughs> a former life. Yeah, a journalist. But 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 you know it's also important to, to 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 know that in in these public health systems and in academia and universities, all these advisory bodies, there's a parallel political system, right? There yes, yes, people yes. All who sort of are very good at kind of rising up and you know being part of cabinet, and there are people who you know are backbenchers or get kicked out of caucus, and they, you know to, to to torture the metaphor, but it's. Um, You know, I think it's very important, and without diving too much into the details, as someone who kind of came back to Ontario to be part of Public Health Ontario, I think Public Health Ontario was killed by politics. It wasn't necessarily, I mean, I I don't think Public Health Ontario necessarily had a strong champion in Kathleen Wynne's government. Uh, But that said, I think the politics that killed Public Health Ontario came from the bureaucracy and from within Public Health Ontario itself. So, you know, you can, you can throw some money at a problem, but then, you know, I think human beings and systems have a way of kind of, you know, regressing to a bit of a mean. And I think what happened to Public Health Ontario is it became a lot like the health bureaucracy as a whole in Ontario in the 2000s, you know, mm-hmm. it dysfunctional. Uh, you had uh, kind of little fiefdoms, you had a lot of uh, kind of in-group, out-group stuff. Um, and, uh, and, and it was very, very hierarchical. And I think that killed innovation, chased away good people, um, sort of gave you a demoralized workforce. So you're, you're not really in a position to, I think public health Ontario, I think at one point they surveyed all the agencies in in Ontario and of all the agencies, uh, uh, under the Ontario government, it, it had the lowest morale of all, like in the entire you know, bureaucracy, which is, which is quite an achievement. I mean, as I tell people, as as few people come last as come first. So it's, it's, uh, it's quite an achievement, but in a, in a, you know, in a world where pandemics were a threat, you know, we're living through one now and the, the factors that created this pandemic aren't going away. Right. You you want to be able to handle something like you want to actually have the ability to handle something like this if it surges up without creating whole new systems, you know, as some as people said, you know, trying to trying to land the plane, you, you know, try to try to build the plane while you fly it or, or whatever the, the mm-hmm. is, you know, you want something that's there and stable and well funded and has a happy, competent workforce. When times are quiet, because you're going to need it when times are bad, bad. It's basically like a military, right? You actually want to have, you know, a group of people who, <laughs> who know how to use weapons and kill, kill other people who, who mean to do you harm, even during peaceful times. And some might even argue that, that that helps contribute to the maintenance of peaceful times, is having the expertise to, you know, to fight a war if you need one. And I think, I think public health is very much that way you know, you have, you have capacity and you keep things quiet and keeping things quiet doesn't mean that you're wasting money on public health. It means it's money well spent because you can do other stuff and public health can be invisible in the background and you don't have to worry about it. So I think, I think that's a real challenge moving forward.
0: It, rem- it reminds me a little, I'm someone who gets chest infections often. I've got a weak lung and part so covid for me was particularly dangerous i was sort of had to be very very careful right. at least till i was double vaccinated and then it was you know patio season <laughs> but i uh, you know i remember i so i've spent a lot of time on antibiotics in my life I one of the big takeaway is you're going to start to feel better don't stop taking the course (laughs) (laughs) you need to finish the whole thing you know and it seems like it's much like that as well we're okay now we can throw away the rest of the antibiotics and (laughs) like, no no no. you need to see this through all the way and then you need to be you know you can't just start feeling better and call it a day and i and i think you're right like the incentives are such that especially you know with quote-unquote scarce resources that when things seem okay you want to re-divert them right and then of course, that you're behind when when things go bad, as you mentioned, as they invariably do, right? right. I mean, that's, we know that they're going to go bad. We don't know when, but we do know that they will. And, yeah. <clears throat> and you know, I, I don't know, presumably this is not just here to stay, but there's a risk that it, in fact gets worse uh, if we're facing things like, you know, encroaching um, urbanization into, you know, environmental areas that are inhabited by other flora and fauna and oh, well, climate change and so exactly. on. Exactly.
1: exactly. I mean, those are so, so, you know, the, the, the painful irony of this particular pandemic is, you know, we, we don't know when we, we, we will, I mean, we'll probably, maybe we'll know in a couple of years. I don't know if we'll ever know. But but it's not unreasonable to think that this pandemic may have emerged as a result of pandemic preparedness research. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Bit of a poignant I- irony. Um, and and one of my big worries is if that does prove to be the case. And I do think it's it's entirely possible that you know you. <laughs> As John Stewart said, you know where oh, so you say the you know the the epidemic began right next the bat coronavirus began right next to the bat coronavirus lab, what are the odds right, right? and um, but 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 you know in all in all seriousness, i mean that that that's important work it may be it's you know stuff's been bubbling out about Wuhan Institute of Virology that they may have been doing stuff very quickly and at low biosafety level and in a foolish way." But that said, I think one of my big worries is that if that proves to be the case, people look at labs and say, oh, well, the lesson lesson out of this is, you know, we just need better, better biosecurity. I do think we need better biosecurity, and I think we need to be more thoughtful about what happens in labs. Because if, even if this was a natural spillover event exactly this can happen via gain of function research in the lab and i mean that was a, that was a group i was part of in i think 2014 we had something called the cambridge De- declaration that really pushed for more of a for actually achieved transiently a moratorium on gain of function research where you make viruses more dangerous to see you know to see what you know what happens when you mutate them in different ways that's a really dumb thing to do to deadly viruses because lab accidents do happen so so biosecurity is important and not doing dumb stuff in labs is important but the you know the mo of ecohealth, which is you know wuhan institute's American partner EcoHealth Alliance has done a lot of really valuable work over the years showing people that well exactly as you say vulnerability happens at the human animal interface. I mean they're notably quiet right now on the fact that the human animal interface can occur in labs, but the human animal interface also occurs with environmental degradation when we destroy rainforests, when we let cities grow and sprawl into, you know, into surrounding wilderness areas, when people trade in bushmeat When we have industrial, you know, basically industrialized agriculture and we have animals kept under conditions where they'd never, you know, they'd never be able to survive Mm -hmm. under conditions on a, you know, on a farm a hundred years ago. So you sort of got these basically very bizarre, you know, growth environments for animals that I think confer a lot of risk to the animals themselves, to humans and to the planet. So, so my, I I do worry that if this does prove to be a a lab event, that that'll take people's eye off the ball in terms of, of natural natural spillover is a thing. It is, and it's an important thing to think about. And you know, it, it, it's potentially, you know, I'm not going to say existential peril, but we we can have a much worse pandemic than this one. I mean, in a sense, this pandemic's hit the sweet spot in terms of disruptiveness because it's not quite virulent enough that people are terrified but it is virulent enough that it can knock down our economy, knock down our healthcare system and just keep going and going and going. Cause we don't want to seal the deal because it's, you know, it's too much work to actually bring it under control. Right. Uh, so, you know, disruptiveness, it's hit the sweet spot, but we can have a much more virulent pandemic than this. I mean, you know, 1% infection fatality ratio, we can have a pandemic that has a five or 10% infection fatality ratio. Um, and, um, you know, people people need need to remember that. And at the same time, you know, and it's bizarre because you see scientists, particularly kind of the virology community and eco-health and so forth, sort of <laughs> spending the last year, year and a half, arguing that this absolutely had to be... Um, a natural spillover event don't don't pay any attention to the lab nothing to see there you know biosecurity is also part of this and to me one of the big dilemmas coming out of this pandemic is how do you how do you fund and support good research that's going to keep us safer in the face of future threats while not having a proliferation of bsl4 labs in every country and you know tons and tons of of Ecologists and virologists out gathering dangerous viruses from caves and bring them back to these BSL four labs for study. Because so I think if you have a proliferation of that, it, we could create a lot of jeopardy that way as well. So I think there's a lot of policy. There's a lot of policy discussions to be had when this is over.
0: Well, you know what that 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 brings us to time, and I, I'm glad you ended on that note and not the. Um it could be so much worse. to 10% note Let's I'm, I'm putting that at the back of my head to process in six to eight weeks. And, <laughs> and I, and I suspect everyone else's too. but, but you're absolutely right. And, and, uh, it is something we have to wrap our heads around. And I, I do worry a little bit that after this is all done, people will just say, I don't want to think about that. Right. Um, you know, because I, we've just been through this. Let's not. And yet, um, we don't really have much of a choice if we want to. If we want to keep ourselves safe, right? I mean, it's you know, it's like um, y-
1: you know, we live in a little house that I love, and uh, there's a lot of things about my uh, our house that I love. Um, I don't give much thought to the gutters, you know, yeah, right. on the roof. It's, they're not really, you know, I don't have warm thoughts about the gutters by the roof of my house. But if i don't think about them and keep them clear then the parts of my house that i like are <laughs> going to get destroyed right dead <laughs> leaves and my my roof starts leaking um so so you know i mean it's it's part of being grown-ups in the world we we have a lot of challenges um and, and, and you know somebody needs to be doing kind of the care and maintenance stuff even though it's non-sexy the um You know, to me, the acid test coming out of this is is WHO has a list of, I don't know, seven or eight um, uh, pathogens for which uh, no vaccine exists, and for which we probably want to have vaccines at least go through phase two trials and be sitting on shelves and ready for scale up. And those include things like Nipah virus, Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever, um, Rift Valley fever, you know marburg ebola hemorrhagic fevers you know things that uh, people have heard of ebola they probably haven't heard of a lot of the other things but they can do this too and so to me you know that 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 that's a little bit my acid test in terms of did we learn is are you are you you know because at a billion dollars pop let's say to bring a vaccine to market that's chump change relative to what we've lost and you know We've lost globally in days or probably hours when the pandemic's been at its worst. It's a good investment. Um, so so that, that to me is a little bit of a, a thing to watch for, is, is, is do, we, um, do we start to kind of get ready for the next one of these things rather than just walk away and say, well, that's over, that was unpleasant. Good thing, good thing it'll never
0: happen again. Well, that's a perfect note to end on. That brings us to okay, the time. Sorry. No, no, it's no, it's it's fantastic, and I, I think it's absolutely right. And so, but uh, first of all, my thanks to you. Thanks for for your work, and thanks for joining me today. Oh, for sure, it's really nice to talk to you. And as always, thanks to Carolyn Smith and to Aaron Reynolds to make the show not just possible, but better than it would have been without them. And to everyone who's listening from wherever you may be listening, um, you hear that? Push your politicians. Not just this one, but the next one too. And we'll see you back here in a couple of weeks.